Yeah. Alright, good. Um, Alright, great. So as, uh, as Father said, we're talking about the book of Exodus. Um, I especially want to draw out some of the connections to Lent, because we're inside Lent, and that's always a good thing to do. Um, but I also just want to talk a little bit about some of the themes in the book, and um, I don't know, some of the things that I find more interesting in the book of Exodus. Um, because I know that it's just a fascinating book to me. Uh, it's very ancient, it goes back thousands of years, and um, it's part of our history as Christians, even though it's written by Jews and for Jews, but we still we still find um, a lot for us in it. So, um, yeah, I want to talk a little bit about Lent for a second. Why do we do Lent? Why do we do it? Why do we do it? What do we do? What do we do Lent for? Why do we do, you know, we, we, we hear about the themes of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, right? Like, why are we doing this? Anyone have an idea? Okay, exactly. Yeah, so there is, there is that, right? Um, anyone, anyone else? We have an example by Jesus, the fasting. Right, exactly, exactly, exactly. So really, why do we do Lent? We do Lent because of Easter. Easter is really what it is all about. It is it is our highest solemnity. It's the holiest day of the year, Easter. In fact, it's so holy, we make it an octave. We, we, we don't celebrate it just one day. We celebrate it for eight days in a row. So we have the octave of Easter. So, so really, it is all about preparation for Easter, right? And so during, during Lent, we try to, you know, kind of simplify things, maybe live a little bit more minimally, um, and we do take on these practices, whether it's a sacrifice or an extra act of charity, some sort of purification of sorts. We do this so that by, when we remove things, when we remove the excesses and the luxuries, we can appreciate more kind of what we have, um, right? And then we also, once Easter comes, we can appreciate those luxuries and those extra additives even more so than we did before we got rid of them. So we give things up and. You know, you'll notice, like for example, in the liturgy, we don't sing the Gloria on Sundays during Lent. And, and the Gloria is one of the most beautiful parts of the Mass, I would say, especially with a nice Mass setting. And so those things are kind of stripped away, taken away, so that only what is the most essential kind of remains. So that's, that's one of these Lenten themes. It's also Lent is just another time to better order things, to reorder things, so you prioritize things. That are the most important. So the highest priority rise to the top. Okay. Um, you really just want to eliminate distractions, obviously. So what does this have to do with the book of Exodus? I want to call your mind to um, one moment in the Exultet, which is a hymn that is sung at the Easter Vigil. Uh, this is a picture. This is my own my own cathedral. Sorry. Um, and Archbishop Brody, he's uh, lighting the Paschal candle outside on the portico of the cathedral. And um, you can see, I don't know, I know because I've been there, but the Paschal candle is right there, and all these other candles have been lit from the, from the Paschal candle. During this part of the Mass, at the vigil, there is a, a, a hymn that's sung, it's called the Exultet, and it's kind of this hymn of rejoicing. Um, and one of, the, one of the lines, one of the stanzas from that hymn is, these then are the feasts of Passover, in which is slain the Lamb, the one true Lamb whose blood anoints the doorposts of believers. This is the night when once you led our forebearers, Israel's children, from slavery in Egypt and made them pass dry shod through the Red Sea. This is the night that when the pillar of fire banished the darkness of sin. Okay. So this is this is from the vigil. Mass from the Exalted Seven is calling, recalling this moment of salvation history, which is found in the book of Exodus. So obviously for this reference of Exodus to appear in our Mass, which we call the mother of all vigils, um, there must be something pretty important about it. But um, the book of Exodus, is, again, it's written for Jews, by Jews. It's a book of Jewish history. 
Uh, and it's important, it was written because it tells Jews something of their identity, who they are as an ethnic people, kind of their origin story, right, once they're living in the promised land. Um, because when the book starts, they're not living in the promised land, are they? Actually, they're not even living in it by the time the book ends, um, which we'll, we'll talk about briefly, But uh, because they're still in Egypt. But we as Christians can appreciate this because uh, we would say we have been grafted onto the tree of Israel. And so Jewish history ultimately is our history as well. So um, One advantage I would say, though, um, is that we can read the book of Exodus through a Christian lens, which I think is a very, very valid thing. Um, and I would say that it even has more unique kind of meaning for us uh, because it kind of talks about salvation history. And when we talk about salvation history, Jesus Christ is the hinge point of salvation history. It is, he is the very center of salvation history. Um, so everything before Jesus and everything after Jesus, I would say, or the Catholics would say, is in reference, Christians in general would say, is in, in reference to Jesus. He's the climax of salvation history. So I want to talk about some of the themes of the book before we kind of talk um, more about it, uh, and I have a, I have a themes and timeline. Uh, maybe I should have put those in reverse order, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, one of the themes you'll see is from slavery to worship, and this is what I would really say is the entire theme, the entire controlling theme of the whole book. Um, other things that pop up, Israel's obstinance, that, that happens a lot, um, which is one of those things is just... One of the things, I, uh, I used to read the book of Exodus and think, man, those guys, what a bunch of, those are just not, not really great. Like, look how obstinate they are, look how foolish they are. And now I'm thinking, man, we're really just like them. Like, we're really no better. So, uh, I am no different or better than these guys. Uh, God's providence is something that comes up very, very often. And then Moses is the burden of leading the people. Um, I mean, if you're looking at this text, Poor Moses, uh, good guy, but boy, the people he is asked to lead is just, oh, I couldn't imagine. Uh, complaining all the time, you know, he's risking his life near death multiple times. Um, and then I would say another theme that appears to me is kind of the concept of law as a formative body or formative text or, or just formative structure um, for, for living. So we'll expand on those on those a little bit. Uh, other things that I kind of just want to point out, you kind of have um, contact with other ancient Near East cultures, obviously the Egyptians in this case. Um, and whenever you start, we were very far removed in time and geography from the ancient Near East. Um, and uh, culturally, it just we have a hard time grasping what life was like and what the, the system of police was like. So um, we will talk about that a little bit as well. Um, so good. All right, let's keep going. We can go over the, uh, the plot points. Um, just real quick, we don't have to read each one of these verbatim, but I do kind of want to make sure we can touch the basics. Um, so you have, you have the book starting with Joseph, not Joseph, the mother of Jesus, obviously, but Joseph, the son of Jacob, um, who in his 11 brothers, right, so he's, he's sold into slavery, right, that, that's, that happened in Genesis, he's sold into slavery, and, and essentially Genesis ends with, this is how the Israelites get into, into Egypt, um, because Exodus is all about going out, right, leaving Exodus, um, obviously you have the Israelites, they're growing prosperous, uh, which prompts Pharaoh to respond. You know, it talks about how the, the, the members of the royal house that knew Joseph died, and so the Israelites in that sense kind of fell out of favor with the Egyptians. And there's a little bit of fear on the part of the Egyptians because they're worried about the Israelites or the Hebrews growing more powerful and overpowering them, right? So they don't want that. This is, their, this is the people they have in slavery, and they want to maintain that. They don't want to be challenged by that. So, um, the instruction is given for the uh, males, the, all the Hebrew males to be killed. Uh, you remember the midwives do not follow that, which is very curious because essentially the, uh, 
It's just this is a, a problem that I have yet to pray about or think about enough to really solve or research enough to solve is that the, the midwives lie to Pharaoh and God rewards them for lying. But that's something that, that's curious, right? Like, that should give us a great pause. Of like, okay, something's going on here because God is rewarding people essentially for lying. Um, and so I, I think that actually points more to just the culture of the writing rather than us. I don't necessarily think we should take our moral advice and think, oh, God thinks it's good to lie. No, I don't think that. But um, it is, it just points to it being at a different time, um, so there's there's some distance there. Uh, Moses is born, and he's put in the river to be drawn out by Pharaoh's daughter, who oddly gives him back to his own mother to be to be raised. So she's raising him. She knows it's his his son, I presume, but uh, no one else seems to. Uh, as an adult, Moses kills an Egyptian for striking an Israelite, and he flees. He actually flees. He, he goes uh, to Midian. He meets Zipporah, who's the daughter of Jethro. Um, he's tending Jethro's flocks. Uh, God speaks to him in the burning bush, and give, he gets all sorts of objections. One of them is, is he mentions speech impediment, we, we think. You know? um, and so God sends, says, okay, well, I'll send your brother Aaron to help you. you know? so, um, Moses goes back to, to Egypt, and um, approaches Pharaoh. You know, God says he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Uh, the plagues happen one by one. At some point, actually, Pharaoh is telling Moses, uh, maybe after the third plague or so, you know, okay, you can go out, but leave your livestock. And Moses says, no, the livestock has got to come with us. Um, one of the interesting dynamics there is that uh, one, of, one of the reasons Moses objects to this offer is because he says that the Egyptians might find their practice of sacrifice abominable and, and might slay them, you know, so, um, which kind of points to maybe how Egyptians hold some creatures, some animals as divinity or something like that as divine beings. So there's definitely a conflict in religion between the, uh, the Hebrews and the Egyptians. Um, God speaks to Moses, gives him the instruction on how to do the Passover ritual, talks about slaying the unborn lamb, putting the blood over the lentils of the oral posts. The angel of the Lord comes through. The tenth plague strikes all of the firstborn, except for the, that of the Israelites, who he spares due to, the, due to the ritual. The Israelites depart Egypt. They gather everything. They don't have very long, you know, unleavened bread. Um, no time to think, and so they depart. Pharaoh changes his mind, decides, um, you know, you guys have seen the Ten Commandments of Charlton Heston, right? You know, I'm not, I'm not telling you anything about that. Um, so, they cross the Red Sea, um, the sea closes up, all, all Pharaoh's chariots, charioteers. God feeds the Israelites with manna, and he provides for them with water from the rock. That happens constantly. Um, they defeat the armies of Amalek. Moses needs help governing such a large number, so they appoint judges. They go into Sinai. Moses goes up the mountain of Sinai um, to receive the commandments. And um, God communicates laws, lots of laws, lots of details, lots of instructions. Um, while, while Moses is up there, the people feel believe that he is dead, and this is actually Aaron's doing, his own brother, uh, believes Moses is dead, so he instructs the people to melt down all the gold, make the golden calf. Um, that's not good. Not, not good. Not good. So Moses comes down, actually God tells him, you know, go down and look what your people are doing, and God actually tells Moses, like, look, I'm just going to take all these people out, I'm going to raise up the nation out of you, and Moses is like, please, please don't do that. Please, like, You've gotten them this far. The Egyptians will, you know, think you are a weak god because you killed your own people. Uh, one of the other interesting themes, I think, is just this whole kind of conversation with Moses and God arguing, essentially, and like having a conversation. You know, when it comes to the later prophets, it's thus says the Lord, you know, X, and there it is. But with Moses and God, there's this dialogue, which is very interesting to me. So, um, Moses goes, he gets new, new commit, the new tablets, uh, comes down, and um, 
he just received a lot of instructions for how to do the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the lampstand, altar of incense, altar of this, altar of that. So um, very curious to me, and I think very curious to us, really, like, God is so very concerned with these very minute details. I mean, he's giving measurements by the cubits and things like that, and that is very peculiar. Um, so we might touch on that a little bit as well. So This, um, this text is really, it's, it's kind of a bit of a patchwork in how it's assembled. Um, mostly it's narrative, there's a song or two in there, some poetry, and then it's kind of a legal text. Um, it's followed by the books of Leviticus and Numbers. Um, Leviticus reads almost entirely like an instruction manual for the, for the priestly system, the priestly caste. Um, but uh, there are the, the laws really start in Exodus, and um, it just as a you know it's it's no spoiler alert. Uh, the, the Israelites actually make it into the Promised Land after the Torah into the Book of Joshua. So Joshua is the one who actually brings them into, into the Promised Land. Moses gets them out of Egypt, um, and so that's why I kind of said for Exodus specifically from slavery to worship. Um, a little bit, just briefly, uh, St. John Cashin, uh, who was, I believe, a Benedictine monk, um, has kind of named four modes of interpreting scripture, and, and these four modes have kind of stuck with our tradition um, for more than a thousand years. He would say that you could interpret scripture literally, is one, one way, right? So what you see is what you get, right? That's one, one option. Uh, typological or also kind of analogy. So um, what you read is kind of a type or an analogy of something else, right? So um, we use analogies uh, often when we tell stories, you know, like uh, the uh, Narnia books, those are mostly kind of analogy, right? Or uh, Aslan is Jesus, and, and it's kind of, it's actually fairly direct direct analogy. So that analogical um, or analogical way is, is one, one way to look at scripture. Another sense of interpreting scripture is the moral sense, right? So what is the story telling me morally about what is right and what is wrong? And you definitely have some of that uh, in Exodus as well. And then the other one, which is uh, it's kind of a prophetic sense, and it's called either the anagogical or eschatological. No easier word, I'm sorry. Um, you would call it kind of prophetic-like, and, and that's something that points to the end times. So we would definitely interpret like the book of Revelation as is eschatological, um, but uh, that's not. I, I just kind of want to give you that that those four frameworks of interpret, uh, interpreting scripture. Um, so let's see here. Okay, we'll get to that in a second. There's a couple other things that I want to want to talk about. Um, so this whole analogy of from sin to slavery. Um, one of the main kind of analogies for sin in our Christian worldview, our Christian tradition, is slavery. Is that sin is something that enslaves us and has enslaved us. And so we kind of think of Christ as coming and breaking chains and, and, and freeing us from bondage to sin. And that is a, that's a very real thing, and I think we see that theme kind of played out in the, in the book of Exodus. Um, you know, you have this passing through the Red Sea, which... Many would say uh, is, a, is a kind of a type or a prefigurement of baptism, right? Because the, when, they, when the Hebrews pass through the Red Sea, that is really the time that they're free from the Egyptians. Because up until that point, you know, the Egyptians are, Pharaoh's chariots are pursuing them. But it's at the passing through the Red Sea, that is the moment. I mean, you really can pin it down to that moment. Um, and so it's very easy to interpret that as kind of this this baptismal moment, even though baptism, right, instituted by Christ, you know, when, when John the Baptist baptizes him. Um, but we can see this as kind of a sort of pre-baptism. Um, and this is something that we can, we can pull out when we look with a Christian lens, right? So this is, this is what I kind of like about the Old Testament, because even though we're not Jewish, we can still, we, we, it's still fresh to us, right? Because baptism didn't come as a sacrament until much, much later than the passing through the Red Sea. Um, the Jews did have ritual washings and bathings. Um, 
But um, that's not, not quite the same as baptism. That's something you would do repeatedly, whereas baptism is a, is a once and for all thing for us. So um, You can kind of view that as this, as this early freeing from sin, but it's still not, they're still not perfect, right? Because the Israelites, they go into the desert, they complain, they grumble against God, they grumble against Moses and Aaron. They have the whole thing with the golden calf. These, these people are not ready for prime time yet. Um, they're trying, but they, um, they want to go back to Egypt all the time. And I think when you think about sin sometimes, especially when you think about trying to break patterns of sin in your life, it's very hard to do. And you often want to relapse into sin and, and fall back into sin. Uh, I, I think it's kind of because sin becomes kind of like a habit for us. And if you look at the attitude of the Israelites as you read the text, you know, they're like, why did you bring us out here in the desert to die? Why can't we just go back to, why can't we go back to the Egyptians? Um, where at least we had food, you know. Um, so there's, there's other interesting parallels and connections, I would say, there. I believe Moses is kind of a prefigurement or a type of Jesus. And even in the New Testament, you hear Jesus referred to as the new Moses, right? So he's, he's somebody who gives law. He's somebody who... who Frees people from slavery. He's, he's a liberator, um, and he's a leader. He's a he's a priestly figure. Um, Moses was a priestly figure. Uh, I'll talk about him in a little bit. Being part of the tribe of Levi, which that the significance of the tribe of Levi, you know, the twelve tribes of Israel. One of those is is the, the Levites, and during the book of Exodus, they are the they are the people who are designated as the priestly the priestly class, and I'll, I'll mention that towards the end. Uh, also with Moses, so as a, as a type or a prefigurement of Christ, you have this infancy story with this kind of royal adoption, um, where in, instead of being the son of God, Moses becomes kind of the son of Pharaoh, um, whereas Jesus was in the house of David through Joseph. So, um, but he, uh, he works miracles, he works signs. Um, and he exercises a, uh, a priestly and intercessory role, I would say Moses does. Um, he intercedes for the people in the tent of meeting, um, the tabernacle. He speaks with God directly, and he intercedes for them on their behalf. Uh, he feeds people with bread from heaven, so the manna is, is basically what's called bread from heaven, um, which is really essentially a prefigurement of the Eucharist. Um, it comes down from heaven, the Israelites gather it every morning, they have, they've done nothing to kind of earn it, right, but it, 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 it comes down from them. Um, and again, you have another maybe sort of image of baptism in water coming from the, from the rock. Um, and then you also have, so, yeah, Moses more or less dying to get people into the, into the promised land. So, I want to talk a little bit about the plague. Uh, that's kind of on the back of your handout. Very interesting. Um, each of the plagues actually corresponds to a deity in the Egyptian pantheon. And so this is, this is just fascinating because when we read these, we're like, what is going on here? All these plagues, like boils, frogs, flop, like what? I mean, they all sound terrible, legitimately, but we don't really have much of a category, I think, to put a lot of these in. Um, but when you learn a little bit more about kind of the culture of the place, they, it makes it makes more sense. So in the first plague, um, the Nile River turns into blood. Not just the Nile, but like even buckets of water turn into blood. All of the water that's available to drinking turns into blood. Uh, and so the the Egyptians have to actually dig into the ground to get water. Um, but there's a there's an Egyptian god. I'm going to say happy, I don't know, happy, who knows, H-A-P-I, uh, who, is, who is their water god. This is, a, this, is, this is who they're praying to, right? So he's like blue, and um, you can see in this depiction, there's kind of like reeds coming up from the water, and you have, I would say water represented, but I'm no Egyptologist. Um, but so, yeah, I would say this is probably maybe similar to like a fountain, hard to say. Um, but so this is this is their this is their water god, and Yahweh God is turning their river to blood. You know, and, and so essentially, what's going on in, in all of these things is is um, through Moses, 
and through, you know, Moses, Moses is telling the Pharaoh what's going to happen, um, and showing him what's going to happen, and he's telling him, there's no, there's really no confusion in Pharaoh's mind how this is happening. Um, but he's, uh, so he's, he's showing Yahweh's power, God's power over these, these deities that the Egyptians worship. There's also a plague of frogs that come out of the Nile, and there's this goddess, Heket, uh, who has the head of a frog. So she's this fertility goddess. A um, couple depictions there. Um, I, it's just very interesting to me. So, so yes, God has power over Heket as well, it turns out. So The other one, the god of the earth, is Geb. And so there's a corresponding plague to this of uh, gnats and lice that actually come out of the ground, out of the dirt, out of the, the dust of the dirt. So it's not just something that comes out of the sky, but it's actually coming from the dirt itself. And so the Egyptians can do nothing to prevent this, right? This is their gods are not real, or if they are worshiping real things, those real things are demons. Um, but uh, I don't know. That's a, that's a story for another day or a, a topic for another day. Um, so uh, again, yeah, the Egyptian Egyptian deity powerless here. Um, Kef, Kef, Kefri? Who knows? Um, uh, but that's that's their uh, kind of god. Not part of the sky, but like the movement of the sun. Um, maybe like the seasons, kind of creation. Uh, and so there's a swarm of flies that, that god brings. And um, I, I kind of think, actually, that head maybe looks like a scarab. I don't know. I could, I could be wrong. So maybe, maybe terminology is in question here, but Flies is the, what the text gives us, and who might argue with flies? So, but, uh, so there you go. Um, Hathor is this deity that has the head of a cow. A um, couple different depictions, and if you Google these names, you'll find a couple different depictions, but I tried to find the ones that made the most sense. Kind of have cow ears. Oh, you know what? I have a lady here. Kind of have cow ears right there, I would say. And then obviously that one's a little bit more, more clear. Um, and so the, the corresponding plague here is the death of livestock, right? Like, which makes sense. Again, if you're if your god has a cow head and all the cows and livestock die, like I guess that god wasn't really doing much for you. So there you go. Isis um, was a goddess of medicine, peace, health. Right? Uh, so, boils and sores. There you go. Hard to say you're in good health when you're covered in boils. Um, I, I've never experienced it. I don't recommend it. Um, I just, I try not to cross God, and I try, and I have no, no plagues so far. So, I don't know, we didn't just live through COVID, so you tell me whether that qualifies. Um, okay. The sky god, Nut. Um, we're awful hard to get through God school, and then your name is Nut. I don't, I don't, I don't get that. But uh, thunder and hail coming from, and just, I think it destroyed all the crops. Um, and if that didn't destroy all the crops, the locusts did. Um, another god, seen as a set, also Seth. So um, there are different spellings, I'm sure, uh, just depending on they weren't speaking English in Egypt anyway. So uh, <clears throat> it's anyone's game. But he kind of seems to be like the. God of chaos. Um, I couldn't really tell you what his head is. I would guess maybe like an anteater or like an art bark or something. I don't really know. I don't know enough about animals of Egypt. I think it's a jackal. Could be a jackal. Yeah, I don't know. Um, there's probably some meaning in that of like what jackals or art marks or whoever it is, whatever, whatever that represented. I'm sure there's some meaning that is just lost on us because we were born, you know. Not, not that long ago. Um, but anyway, yeah, uh, go figure. God has dominion over him too. So, convenient for us. Um, another god is Ra, who is one of their main deities, um, probably their foremost deity. And he's the sun god. And so, easy way to, if you're God, if you're the real God, easy way to deal with that is just walk out of the sun for three days. Um, so he does. And then finally, um, also really uh, in, their, in their pantheon, 
was the Pharaoh. Um, he was considered to be the firstborn of Ra, and he kind of represented the Egyptian, the entire Egyptian um, system of worship. And so uh, he being the firstborn of Ra, the, I guess the, the, the unfortunate thing for the Egyptians is to have the, um, the death of the firstborn. So, um, which is finally, finally what convinces Pharaoh to, to let the uh, Israelites go. Some other topics, we're doing pretty good on time, we're moving fast, so hope you don't uh, go home disappointed. But, um, so some other, other topics that I just wanted to talk about a little bit, uh, which I think are especially pressing to us as Christians. One of them is, is the Passover, and so there's a few things I just wanted to mention. Um, this is really, uh, it's really interesting to us because the Last Supper that Jesus instituted is set within the context of the Passover which is what we get from the book of Exodus. And that's, that should be really interesting to us um, because Jesus is essentially doing a new Passover. He's, he's fulfilling the Passover at a whole deeper level than, than the Jews had really anticipated. Um, and so that's the meal in which he institutes the Eucharist. Um, what's also interesting, so the Passover meal required an unblemished lamb. And in ancient Judaism, the person who judged whether an unblemished lamb or a lamb was unblemished or not was one of the priests. And uh, John the Baptist was from a priestly family. His, his father was Zechariah, who um, was a Levite, uh, which I'll talk about in just a second again. And um, in order for, for the, the system of worship and sacrifice, the priests had to basically sign off on the land that was unblemished. So what's interesting is that when Jesus goes to John the Baptist, and obviously John being a son of, of Zechariah, he had he, that, that priestly service, that priestly role, is transmitted from father to son. Right? So, so John is essentially in the priestly class, John the Baptist. And so when John is baptizing, Jesus approaches him. John says, Behold the Lamb of God. And because John is a priest, he is uniquely qualified to identify Jesus as the Lamb of God. Right? So, so Jesus is kind of becoming the new Passover Lamb. Um, and that all comes out of Exodus, or, or you could also say Exodus points to that. Um, but this is kind of a prefigurement. And I'm, I'm, I'm jumping around, of course, you know, over, over a thousand years, but uh, probably like 2,000 still another thousand years until the time of David, at least another thousand years, 1400 years, whatever. Um, so anyway, this whole notion of having an unblemished lamb and that being the sacrifice of Passover, that's something which Jesus brings to fulfillment because he is, he is the Father's lamb. Um, and so, yeah, you need a priest to know that, and John is the one who, who identifies that. So we have that in our gospel. So I just think that's interesting, and it is the blood—it is the blood of the Lamb which marks the believers, right? The people who God passes over, um, and so there's—I would say—an interesting connection there. You know, you have with John six in the Gospel, um, of talking about unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you do not have life within you. Well, I—I I mean, I'm thinking right here, we've got an obvious connection uh, to that. So. That's just something that's very interesting to me. I, I hope you find that interesting. I don't know. So, um, but yeah, we really do see, we really do see a prefigurement of the mass, even the mass we celebrate today uh, as part of the Passover. Um, so we have the, the golden calf as well, right? And um, just when you think things are going really well for the Israelites, Moses goes up the mountain. He's getting things sorted, settled with God. He comes down, he finds the uh, Israelites falling into adultery again. Uh, well, actually, I meant to say idolatry, but probably adultery if you look from the verses there. Um, this leads to them uh, wandering in the desert for another 40 years. Uh, the generation that participates in this uh, has to die, so they cannot make it to the promised land, unfortunately. The other thing I want to mention about this is this, this event is the impetus for the changing of the priestly role for the Israelites. So previously, every firstborn male was kind of took on the role of, of 
priesthood at some level, right? Not necessarily the ministerial priesthood that we kind of think about today, but in terms of just representing the Israelites to, to God, yes, the firstborn males had this priestly role automatically assigned to them. Just that's how it is. Um, we could, I, could, I should have my, have my Bible in my bag, but I could kind of show you some verses of, of pretty much God saying, all the firstborn males belong to me. Um, and so as a result of this idolatry, Jesus, uh, God, also Jesus, although nobody knows about him yet, um, changes this. And he says, okay, that whole old system of, of priesthood is done. Now we're going to what we call the Levitical priesthood. So the descendants of the tribe of Levi. So if you remember the, the, the brother Joseph, who's 11 brothers sold him into slavery. And those, those 11 brothers, those 12 brothers total, became the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, pretty bad. You sell your brother into slavery, and you still have a whole tribe named after um, you. still get Israel's birthright. So Levi was one of those, and his descendants are the tribe of Levi. Um, Moses and Aaron were part of the tribe of Levi. And it is that Levitical uh, family, tribe, that is now responsible for being priests. Um, but there's a condition. If you're not a Levite and your firstborn is a male, um, you have to go to the temple after the temple is built, and you have to redeem him. So you have to give the you have to give a priest like five shekels or some some price to because instead of your son your firstborn male son being a priest, that duty has been passed over to a, to a Levite. And so you're essentially buying your son out of his priestly duty because um, your son isn't allowed to be a priest anymore. Your, your firstborn son, he would have been allowed to be a priest in this old system before the golden calf. I don't know, if I'm, I'm probably explaining this poorly. If you're totally lost to say something. Um, but the new system, in the new system, if you're not part of the tribe of Levi, you're not in this priestly tribe, this, the first male-born sons have to be redeemed, and, and there's a Levite that kind of takes their place. It's not a one-to-one -one, um, arrangement, but it's just the fact that now all the first-born male sons have to go through this, product, this process of what's called redemption. And so actually, when you look at the, the text in the Gospel of Luke, uh, where Jesus is presented in the, in the temple... Um, they're not just presenting him. They're actually going and redeeming him. And so um, the, uh, one of the priests there, Simeon, um, he is the one, and, and if you re I, could, I should probably open it up. Let me, let me look at it and read it. Um, it's hard to, we don't have a great reference for, for it, but essentially when a child was redeemed, um, the, priest would, the priest who was doing this particular rite, this particular ceremony, would, would say a, kind of a special prayer, a special blessing that kind of absolves him of priestly service so that one of the Levites will kind of take his role. Um, and Simeon prays, but he never, he never says that kind of blessing, right? So the implication there is that Jesus does not, is not kind of absolved of his priestly role or his priestly duty. Uh, even though by um, there's, there's more interesting stuff it's just coming to mind faster than I can say it um, because his, so his father Jesus' father Joseph is from David's family uh, which is the, the family of Judah um, so basically you have Jesus he has you know, Joseph and Mary Joseph is from this royal household and Mary is from a Levitical household so he has this both priestly and kingly lineage uh, that combined, right, with his, from his two parents to him. Um, yeah, if you if you look in Luke chapter two, where Jesus is presented in the temple, um, you you can you can read. I, I won't go over it because it really has nothing to do with Exodus. I just got off on a tangent, um, but it's, I just get excited about this stuff, so you'll have to excuse me. Um, but he, he praised his prophecy. It was prophesied that he would live until he saw the Messiah. And so he, he says that, which we say in the Liturgy of the Hours at night prayer. All, all clerics do and seminarians who pray the Liturgy of the Hours. Um, but anyway, yeah, so, so uh, when Simeon sees Jesus and Mary at the, 
the temple for his for his presentation, also redemption. Um, he doesn't technically redeem him or, or say we don't have record of that anyway. Um, I think the implication there and, and is uh, is that Jesus kind of continues his priestly duty, his priestly responsibility. Um, so let's see what else. I think I had something else. Oh yeah, yeah, okay. Some of the liturgy, liturgical elements in the book of Exodus. This is very interesting. The last few chapters of Exodus, these very specific instructions. One thing which I wanted to point out specifically, um, you could talk about any of them, but, but why? Um, there's a lot of detail that goes into the high priest's garments. And so you have this breastplate with all these stones, all these precious stones. You have the ephod, which we kind of think is this smock thing. I don't know. I, you have to... I'm glad somebody has done this research because when I read it, I don't know what an ephod is. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know if you do. Um, but you have this linen, this linen kind of cloak. You have another cloak and on it it has pomegranates and gold bells. Um, you have all these stones set, one stone each representing the, the tribes of Israel. Um, one other since, I'm, since things are coming to mind... Um, Jesus calls 12 apostles, right? And there's 12 tribes of Israel. Why do you think that is? <laughs> so Jesus is establishing a new Israel when he, he threw in a new covenant, right? And so he is fulfilling what was already in place and, and deepening it even more. So this whole notion of 12, very significant number, um, 12 apostles, and he is, he is remaking... He's remaking the temple. He's remaking the nation of Israel. Uh, he's remaking everything. But uh, you have this turban up there too. Um, what do, What do you guys think? I, why? What would you? If and I, I probably should have given handouts or something, or, or uh, with the, the scripture verses on it. I think that's Yes. Yeah. I think. I think so. This. Uh, this guy. The, the breastplate on top of it. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, embroidered sash. So anyway, um, in the last, let me let me just read one of these small sections. Uh, and it's not going to be interesting. I'm not. I just it's not. Uh, but it just I just want to give you a sense of it because we could read more, but it's not interesting. So I'm not going to not going to belabor the point. So this is chapter 37, verse 17 through 24. Uh, he also made the lampstand of pure gold. The base and the shaft of the lampstand, lampstand were made of hammered work. Its cups, its capitals, and its flowers were of one piece with it. And there were six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almonds, each with capital and flower, on one branch, and three cups made like almonds, each with capital and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself were four cups made like almonds, with their capitals and flowers, and a capital of one piece with it under each pair. The six branches going out of it, their capitals and their branches were of one piece with it. The whole of it was one piece, hammered work and pupil. And it, I mean, it just goes on, and it's, it's very kind of specific detail. What is our takeaway from that? Um, you can have a lot of opinions on this. This is this is not that the church says any one particular way to read these verses, right? But what I kind of take as this from somebody preparing for priesthood is that basically we need to take the liturgy very seriously. That's that's really my takeaway. Um, for some reason, and which I won't claim to understand entirely, um, or even mostly, God gives the Israelites very, very specific details on how he is to be worshipped. Um, what, what does that mean? What does that mean for us today? I, I would say, in my own personal you know, opinion, I would say that, that at least something of that is still true today. Um, it's, I think it's impossible to draw any definite conclusions, or and you can certainly over-apply that or over-read that into God wants this one thing or this other thing today. But I do think that liturgy is something that is very important to us um, and should be very important to us. And it would strike me as very funny if the God who specified 
that the cups need to look like almonds on the lampstand wasn't kind of, kind of concerned with how we worship them. Um, the other takeaway from that is um, we kind of talk about the theme of going from slavery to worship, which is true. And I think that worship really um, one of the uh, primary elements of, of worship um, is this notion of being in right relationship with God. And um, I think that these, this, some of this is, a, is my opinion too, right? Um, but it's nothing that contradicts the church, so you're good in that sense. Um, if people are allowed, theologians are allowed to speculate, you're not allowed to speculate, you're allowed to speculate. Um, the church reigns in things that need to be reigned in, and that's good. But um, uh, I, I would say, this is my speculation, that a lot of these rules, a lot of these laws, um, are formative and they help form us in right relationship with God. Um, and that God isn't doing this for his own benefit, but he's doing it for our benefit. Because what does God really need the Israelites for anyway? You know, like, he pretty much told Moses he was going to walk, wipe them out after the golden calf incident. Um, so, so they weren't... He, God isn't doing this for himself. He, it, it, you can call God a jealous God, but is he jealous for, for himself or is he jealous for his people um, on, or on behalf of his people? And I would say that it is on behalf of his people. Um, so even though the book of Exodus seems crazy, um, and even though we have these crazy stories and these crazy plagues and, and these, this crazy dialogue between Moses and God, I think there's actually, at the heart of it, a very loving God that you have to dig a little bit to see. Um, and you just don't have, if you're only reading the book of Exodus, or you start at Genesis and you only read through the book of Exodus, you may not recognize God as very loving, but it, this is all towards working to get us towards the, the arrival of Jesus, right? So you kind of have to think like, okay, the world was really great before the fall of man in the garden, and, and you can really view salvation history as God getting us to a point where the world is ready, you know, in the fullness of time for Jesus to come. And so I think the book of Exodus is a very important kind of step um, in, the, in the way there. It's a very important part of salvation history. Much like Lent is a very kind of important part of our um, of our spirituality. Because yes, you know, you, you kind of think about the arrival of Christ. Um, certainly starts with the Nativity, starts with Christmas, but it really ends with the Paschal Mystery, the death and resurrection. Um, which is what we're preparing for specifically during Lent. So that's the connection that I want to make tonight. Um, I, I, I just really want us to appreciate, I think, it, the book of Exodus is very important, and it's actually, I've mentioned the Liturgy of the Hours, which is that, that prayer that priests and deacons pray. Um, all during Lent, every year, one of the prayers that you, you do in these different readings, you read through Exodus. I'm not even ordained a priest yet, and I'm already sick of reading through the book of Exodus. <laughs> I've been doing this like six years now, and it's like, you get, you get to March, you get to February each year, and you're just like, oh, the book of Exodus again, you're just like, you feel as tired as Moses does. You know, <laughs> so, um, but it's, it really is an important part of, I think, our kind of lending spirituality. I think it's something we can look to um, as part of that, so... Any questions or anything? I guess we made it to 45 minutes after all. Hopefully I didn't repeat myself too badly. So. Is that, I don't know, have you guys thought of some of these things or seen some of these things before? If you read a lot of Scott Hahn, you probably like are well but beyond this, but I don't know. So. Sure. So um, I know that there's a reading from the book of Exodus um, about the crossing of the Red Sea that's one of the Easter Vigil readings. Mm -hmm. And um, obviously that's an important part of salvation history. Do you know anything about how the readings for the Easter Vigil, like how did they pick that particular part of, I mean that seems like a pinnacle point of Exodus, but. Right. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't. I mean, yeah, I know you can do up to eight readings if you're really brave. <laughs> and I, I, 
Ooh, I, that's a question I'll have to ask the pastor one day. Is how many of these readings we want to do? Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I don't really know how they went through and selected each of them. Um, yeah, I, I wish I did. I wish I did. But I, I can. I mean, I think you're right, though, and I think it is. It, it's one of the more pivotal moments, um, as as to. Depi- as depicted with Charlton Heston so well. <laughs> yes, so. Um. Uh, any other questions or anything? Sure. Uh, I mentioned it. Uh, did God really harden the Pharaoh's heart? Was he already, was he already, they say that. Yeah, that is a great question. Um, and I don't know if anyone really has an answer to that, but the implications are really far-reaching. Because then it gets to like, well, what of what of human free will? You know, um, what does that say? Or or can we even can we even read into that direction? And and I actually I do think maybe the question is asking too much of that particular passage. And uh, maybe maybe it is, maybe it's not. I, I would say sin is possible, right? And so uh, we do have free will. We have the capacity to sin, um, we have the capacity to disobey God, because we, if we didn't, we wouldn't have the capacity to love God or to follow God. Um, so where you have the choice to do one, you have to have the choice to do the other. Um, but yeah, Pharaoh, God hardened his heart. Definitely is what the text says, um, but then I think the question, as you point out, is well, what do we do with that? And um, I don't I have a hard time believing Pharaoh was like a puppet on a string um, for for God. I don't. That does. I, I have my conclusion from that is that it's kind of a literary device. Um, you could probably find people smarter than me who think something different, um, but that's my own kind of sense of that. Is that that's kind of a literary device? But I don't know. I don't know the text well enough. I don't know Hebrew. I don't know that, you know, the, the authorship well enough to really have, like, an intelligent opinion <laughs> on it. Um, but, um, yeah, I just, I can't, I have to think that's just kind of how it was interpreted and how it was written. Um, so, yeah, that's my only thought on that, really. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Anyone else? All right, well, that is it, then, so...